This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let's get in now to the preaching of God's Word. If you have your Bible, open it to John 3. John chapter 3, if you're at home, click through on your Bible, open your Bible. If you're on a, with a traditional paper Bible, if you've got a device, let's open to John chapter 3, and would you join me in a word of prayer? God, you are indeed great and holy. You are near to the brokenhearted and steadfast in our hour of need. Father, as cases of the coronavirus and hospitalizations uh, continue to rise in our area and around our country and in many parts of the world, we pray for mitigation efforts to work. We pray for those researching this virus that they would uh, come up with um, therapeutics and the vaccines and all of those things. We pray for God, the healthcare workers that bear a large burden, the hospital systems and the people who care for patients. This is no doubt uh, among, if not the most trying times in their careers. And so we ask for strength. We pray that those who know you would be encouraging others to cling to you and to look to you. We pray that if, pray that if those of us are connected to healthcare workers and others um, in, uh, in our lives, that we would be an encouragement, reach out and let them know that we are praying for them. And Father, I, I pray that um, we would give you glory. We would give you glory that you have not left us during this time, and we would give you praise that, um, Father, one of my big, my big concerns is that this would fade or something would be discovered that could help and we would again rejoice in the triumph of man. But Father, may we praise you for any good that we see, and may we hope in you uh, to bring a reduction and even an end uh, to this, this terrible thing that has befallen the whole world. Father, we know that you love us. Father, we know that the things of this world are important, but there is a spiritual reality, a darkness, as well as uh, a truth that we, uh, though we might be alive in the body, are dead spiritually without the renewing work, the restoring work, the redeeming work, Christ on the cross and the Holy Spirit indwelling hearts. And so we pray that we would take hold of the new birth, we would live as new creations. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this is a big morning in our series. We're looking at the big movements of God. We're looking at some Bible study skills. I hope you brought your study guide with you. If you didn't, there's some in the back. We are talking about John 3. We're in John 3. We're talking about the new birth, and we are looking at the spiritual and study discipline of systematic theology. I'll talk a little bit more about systematic theology in a minute, but before we do that, let me begin reading. I'm not going to read the whole chapter in its entirety all at once. What I want to do is read a little bit and work a little bit. Read a little bit and work a little bit. So John 3, starting at verse 1. This is a big moment. 
We've seen all throughout the scriptures, starting early in the Bible, that God has a purpose to rescue and save and restore people. We've been little, given little glimpses, kind of little previews of how he plans to do that. But this morning we see how God intends to redeem people, exactly what he believes or what, what he tells us is necessary and how through belief in Jesus Christ we can be redeemed or saved. So this is a big morning in this 13-part series. We've come to a crucial, crucial crux of God's salvation work. John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now let's stop there. The reason that I wanted to pair John 3 in the new birth with the discipline of systematic theology is because in order to understand what Jesus is saying about being born again, we need to see this theme played out, traced out a little bit throughout the scriptures. And then we're going to go to another place in the Old Testament later in this chapter. The two Old Testament books we'll be in talking about the new birth, systematic theology, are Ezekiel and Numbers. How great are those polls? We're going to be in John 3, and then Ezekiel and Numbers. And so I'm, I think a lot of you probably got up this morning thinking, I bet you we'll talk about numbers in church today. You are right. Here we go. So systematic theology, let me just, let me just get this out of the way. Systematic theology might conjure for you uh, pictures of old men with white beards sitting in their dusty offices surrounded by stacks of out-of-print books. Now, that's not entirely untrue. A lot of our best work and ministry in the church and the writing comes out of the library, out of the study. But systematic theology is also eminently useful. My best definition for systematic theology is simply this. Taking a topic in Scripture and looking at how that topic is addressed at other points in Scripture to inform you. That's my, that's my simplest definition of systematic theology. So just, just by example, if you wanted to know what the Bible says about sin, what you would do is you would just look up different places in the Bible that address sin, and then you would synthesize, summarize their teaching. So what does the Bible say about the need to be born again? is the question that we are going to ask this morning. To do that, let's start with Nicodemus. A little background on Nicodemus that we can already tell from these three verses that we just read. He was a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisee is part of the Jewish leadership, kind of a ruling class. They were educated, known for their piety, their zealousness, and they were also elitists. They thought everybody else was second class compared to them because they weren't as pious and holy and as educated. So that's who Nicodemus is at least a part of. It's the crowd he runs with. Second, we know that Nicodemus is a little confused. I see that in two places. First, the most obvious is that Nicodemus says that, well, it's obvious that Jesus comes from God. 
because he couldn't do the things, the signs that he's doing, unless God was with him. Now, that's antithetical to what the Pharisees often come to Jesus and saying. At various points throughout the scriptures, they come to Jesus and they think he's insane. They think he is completely confused. They even call him a child of the devil. So which is it, Nicodemus? Is he insane or is he obviously from God? Nicodemus is confused. The second place that I see that is it says that Nicodemus came at night. Now, that's one of those details we can learn a little bit from. First, he came at night. He came when it was dark out. Uh, One theory that I have, other people have, is that he comes at night because he doesn't want, he wants sort of the cover of darkness. He doesn't want to see his Pharisee buddies to see him coming to inquire of Jesus. But the other thing, maybe, just maybe, is John, the writer of this gospel, uses the theme of light and darkness to describe those who are spiritually awake and aware and those who are spiritually uh, dead. Those who walk in darkness are dead. Those who walk in light are spiritually aware and alive. All throughout the gospel, John does this. And so we're probably meant to believe Nicodemus is spiritually dead. He is spiritually unaware. Nicodemus doesn't understand the good news that Jesus has come to bring of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says you can't see the kingdom now unless you are born again. So Nicodemus says, I want to know more, basically. And Jesus says, listen, unless you're born again, I'm not going to be able to tell you much more. So again, what, is this, what does it mean to be born again? Because if you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, you want to see the kingdom of God. The, the testimony of Scripture is that you want to be one who sees and knows the kingdom of God. That's how you have everlasting life. That's how you're saved. It's another way of saying saved is to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus says you can't do that unless you're born again. So we want to know. <laughs> what does it mean to be born again? And this is what, look at what Nicodemus asks. Verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, I've been trying to decide for 20 years whether Nicodemus is really this obtuse or whether he's being a little bit of a jerk. Is he being sarcastic and saying, well, how, do we, how does that work, Jesus? Do I crawl back up there in the womb and try to come out again? Obviously, he knows that doesn't happen. Or is he saying, what, are you, what do you mean, born again? This is such a foreign phrase to him that he doesn't get it. Either way, it doesn't matter, because Jesus just kind of rolls right through that and said, I'm glad you asked. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now remember, Nicodemus is a smart guy. Basically has a PhD in Old Testament. And the question he asks after this is, is how is this even possible? And so Jesus says, here's how it's possible. The Spirit can move in this way. Now, I want to look 
at uh, the place that, that it's pretty evident that Jesus is referring to in the Old Testament. Where does he get this idea of being born again? Where is he founding this idea, rooting this idea of being born again? And we get this idea because he talks about also washing and cleansing with water and the movement of the wind. And so if you are in your paperback Bible, um, go ahead and, and stick your finger in John 3 and flip it over to Ezekiel 36. If you don't want to go there, that's fine. You don't have to. I'll just read it. If you're not familiar and, and would rather just stick in John 3, that's fine. I'll just read it. But if you want to go to Ezekiel, it's probably a little bit to the, he's one of the prophets, probably a little bit to the right of center of your Bible. We're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. So let me just set the context for you real quick. It's 600 years B.C., and Israel's capital, Jerusalem, the city that stood for God, has been destroyed. The nation of people has been scattered. We studied that in our walk through the Old Testament just a couple weeks ago. In our walk through the Bible, we were there. So the nation has been sent into exile. People are, are scattered, and they are experiencing a profound sense of hopelessness. The nation is destitute. They're wondering, where does help come from? What, what, what happens to us now? Are we ever restored to the fortune that God said we would have? Or is this it from, for us? Have we been destroyed and we will never get the capital back? We will never get the nation back. We will never again be a people. And so this is what Ezekiel says, into the midst of that hopelessness. So just, if you are that hopeless, if you are that destitute, hear these words like that. I will take you, this is verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now remember, the people have been scattered away from the land, so now they're going to be called back to the land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. Remember John 3, you've got to be washed with water. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit Remember, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The Spirit has to do this work in John 3. I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave your fathers and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. If you are in a hopeless place wondering what God is doing with you, this is a great promise. If you're in a hopeless place today wondering what God is doing with you, the new birth is a great, great promise. So Jesus' answer to Nicodemus' question of how is the new birth possible is by saying really simply, you can't do it but God can. How is this new birth possible? Well, it's not possible for you, but it's easy for God. So how can hope be restored? How can people be given a second or a seventh or a seven hundredth chance? How can sinners who've fallen short of God's glory be seen as righteous and acceptable in his sight? How can people who are dead be made alive? The answer is that God can do that. 
God can do those things and so much more. What jumps off the, the page as you read this prophecy from Ezekiel is that he doesn't say, well, if you will just quit messing up or if you will learn to fly straight or if you hadn't screwed up so bad or if you will just do anything. There's nothing that it says you have to do. Every bit of this work of restoration comes from God. Look again at John 3, verses 3 and 5. They very much run parallel to each other. Truly, truly, I say, unless someone is born of God or born of water and the Spirit, in verse 5, they cannot see the kingdom of God. So according to Ezekiel 36, both of those works are works of the Spirit. Without a new birth, Ezekiel says, our hearts are like stone, hard, cold, and very much not alive. But with the Spirit, stone doesn't just become, but is replaced with. It's transplanted with flesh. And it has to be a spiritual work. Humans cannot do this on our own. For the work of the Spirit, for everyone who is born this way, born again, is born of the Spirit. Here's the truth throughout Scripture. Humans are sinful because we are begotten from, we come from, we are descendants of other sinful humans. We both sin by choice, but we are also sinful we are born in inequity, Psalm 51.5 says. From our birth, we are sinful. But the Spirit is perfect. The Spirit is holy. The Spirit is, has never sinned. And so the Spirit can give a new birth. The Spirit can give a new, fresh start. The Spirit can make us a new creation. And so we must look to the Holy Spirit for that to happen. Looking to the Spirit means looking for the Spirit to work. In other words, anticipating, expecting that the Spirit can and will do this, and yielding to the Spirit so that He might work within us. The Bible says we can't serve two masters. You can't serve the things of this world and try to serve the Spirit. You have to yield, give up the things of this world, and take on, yield to, delight in the things of God. And Jesus said the Spirit moves a little bit like wind. Often unseen, but this work is powerful. The Spirit's work is powerful. In English, the wind and the Spirit, that's a nice word picture. In Greek, it takes on this whole new meaning because the, the word for Spirit and the word for wind, they're the same words. So like ancient sailors, think of it like this, dependent on the wind for power, so are spiritual people born of the Spirit, dependent on God's Spirit to move for power, for life. A spiritual person looks to the Spirit of God and has a heart given, born of, the Spirit. And so again, Nicodemus asks, verse 10, verse 9 of John 3, how can this be? How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Aren't you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. 
If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, there's this principle that, that comes up all throughout the Scriptures, but it can really be seen in the Gospel. Spiritual things aren't seen by people who are rooted in and consumed by the things of this world. You have to have spiritual vision. You have to have spiritual eyes. You have to be born again and impacted by the Spirit, led by the Spirit to see spiritual things. And so Nicodemus, who's really smart, nobody's going to doubt that. He's got credentials. He's got the degrees. But he doesn't have spiritual vision because he hasn't been led by the Spirit to repent and believe the good news of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying to him, even when I'm, tell, I'm telling you exactly how this happens, how this works, but you won't be able to understand it because you're, you're not at a place where you can see it. And Jesus doesn't say this to be proud or arrogant. He doesn't say it to put Nicodemus down. He's not trying to belittle Nicodemus. He's not trying to exclude Nicodemus from seeing something. In this moment, Jesus is actually loving Nicodemus. He's showing Nicodemus his care and his concern. In effect, he's inviting Nicodemus to quit trusting in the things of this world and to see the Spirit and believe. What he's saying is, Nicodemus, if you continue believing and thinking the way that you are right now, you're never going to see these things. I could sit here all night with you, and I could tell you about all these things, but it won't make a difference because you're spiritually dead the way you are now. So yield to the Spirit and be become alive. Again, Nicodemus, you're not born again. And so we could talk about this all day and night, but it's not going to make a difference. Again, he's not saying that this is some exclusive offer that Nicodemus can't have. Jesus never says salvation is exclusive. It's inclusive. It's the, it's the widest offer in all the world. Anybody can be saved. Anybody can believe in Jesus Anybody can be born again. Nobody's restricted from this, no matter how dark the past, no matter how defiant the heart and mind. Anybody can be born again. And then Jesus says, how does the new birth happen? How can these things be again, Nicodemus? He says it comes by looking to the Son of Man. And then, and then we, he references this, this really obscure event that's captured in the Old Testament book of Numbers. So let me just read, and then and I'll tell you a little bit about this. This is Numbers 21, starting at verse 4. Numbers 21, 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So uh, they have the Israelites have just come out in the event known as the Exodus. You remember that? People leave slavery in Egypt. God parts the Red Sea for them. They walk through on dry land. The Egyptian army pursues and is swallowed up by the sea, and the people are now on the other side of Egypt. They're on the Sinai, what we know today is the Sinai Peninsula, and they want to move around the land of Edom. It's a, a land filled with people who, who may try to make war against them, who wouldn't like it that they were uh, cutting through their property, so to speak. And the people spoke against God and Moses. 
They became impatient on the way. They spoke against the says, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, first of all, this is a lie. God was providing them with food that they needed, and he was making water when they needed it. You can, they're caught in their own line right there. For there is no food and water. We loathe this worthless food. Well, there's obviously food. You just don't like it. They don't like eating the same thing every day. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And so many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, so they're repenting now, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's all we get from this. Isn't that a strange story? Isn't that an, an odd time? So the people, they've been delivered by God in this powerful way and promised riches and abundance, but they become impatient because it's just not coming right away. I know nobody can identify with that. He they become dissatisfied with God and frustrated, and so they begin to complain. And then God uh, sends these fiery serpents to sort of say, oh, okay, if this is what you want to complain about, I'll, I'll kind of, you know, I'll make things worse, and you'll see that you really do need me. This is a pattern in our lives. We're promised by God care. We're promised grace. We're promised abundance but it doesn't come in the way that we want it, so we grumble. We, we become impatient. But in this story, God shows, Jesus shows, how the new birth is accomplished. How, how does one get eternal life? So the Israelites, they're walking in the desert, frustrated. Things begin to go badly for them. They come to God, ask for help, and God decides to break this. This is a cycle that happens over and over again, and God decides to break the cycle. So because he is loving and faithful, kind of like a, a, a great father, he will accept them back, and God devises this plan. So Moses makes something that looks like one of these serpents, put it on a big stick, so that everybody from all over the group, when they're bitten, they can look at it, and the poison will be removed from their bodies, and they'll be spared from death. It's a weird solution. Absolutely, it's a weird solution. And we can get into the, 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 the weirdness of it more. But for right now, all we need to know is why Jesus uses this of all the places to talk about how God saves people. And the reason is just like the serpent was given for anyone to look at and be saved, so was Jesus soon to be lifted up on the cross. And now anyone who looks on him... In our case, spiritually, anyone who believes on him will be given eternal life, will be saved. And now we get this explanation. One of the, the greatest verses in all the Bible, we see this, you know, held up on signs at, at sporting events and in crowds. You know, when we used to go be around other people and stuff like when we used to do that, people would do this. And so it says in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. These are, again, such, such great verses. First, very simply, what we see is God loves all people. Not just certain ones, not just ones that have grown up in certain homes or with certain behaviors or who have not committed certain sins. God loves everyone. So I want to just tell you three, three things that come out of these verses, and that's the first one. God loves everyone. If you read the New Testament, you're constantly confronted with the love of God. However, even though it's, it seems natural and deserved, we're told to love everybody. We're told that we should be loving people. So it seems natural. Of course, God loves everybody. The Bible actually handles the love of God slightly different than we are prone to. The Bible doesn't assume that God should love people. It's astonished that he loves people. We assume we should be loving people. The way people are presented in the Bible, it's astonishing that God loves us. Now, it's so easy for us to believe that God would love us. You know, after all, you know, we're kind or gentle or patient or loving people. We give, we're generous, we work hard and be good neighbors and good people and stuff like that. So we, we can easily think, well, why wouldn't God love me? But the problem with that way of thinking, and really honestly, is that thinking is not consistent with the rest of the teaching of the Bible. And it's really not true to, to the people that we are. Now, th- this verse is huge in the story of the Bible because the Bible continually points out, if you read the Bible, you do not read a record of people who are holy and righteous and always do the right thing and always do what is upright and moral and decent. In fact, they almost never do that. The record of people in the Bible are people full of flaws, dishonest, dishonorable. The horrific nature of humanity is brought out. And this isn't to to drag people down. It's to help us see ourselves accurately. So when Jesus says, for God so loved the world... We shouldn't say, well, yeah, of course he does. He's, he's really great. We should say, wow, that's amazing. Look around at the world. It's full of selfish people. It's full of fallen and broken people. It's full of people who have taken the goodness that God has given and oftentimes rejected it. Yet God says here, yet Jesus says here, for God so loved the world. It's astonishing that God loves people, but he does. It shows his grace. It shows his goodness. Despite all of this, God says, I love you anyways. That's the testimony of the Bible. Read verse 19 one more time. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the, that's the world that God sends his son into. God sends light into the world and people go, now we like the darkness better. But here's goodness. Now we'd rather have evil. 
But in spite of the mess, God loves you and me and us. And it's not because we're good neighbors or kind people. It's not because we've earned his love in any way. But because God is love and he's pledged love and he will always be faithful to love. Anything we have of love comes from God. It says in one of John's letters, 1 John 4, we are able to love because he loved us first. Anything that we have of love is from him. And this leads me to my second great truth. So the, the first thing is it's astonishing that God loves, God loves it all. The second thing, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The love that God has for the world is the gift of grace and the proof, the measure of God's love is Jesus. He is a father who gave up his son for us, his only son. And so just think, if you are a parent, what would it take for you to give up your child so that another child might have their suffering alleviated? It sounds noble and it sounds decent, but would you? I, I don't know that I would. I don't think I would. But God gives his only son over. So if you want to know, well, how much does God love me? He gave you his son. He gave up his son for you to be tortured and brutalized and murdered. So that's the second thing. Great truth in this verse. He gave his one and only.